My name is Priyansh. I'm Tayyaba. And I'm Omer. Welcome back to Oats for Breakfast. We're going to be continuing the discussion we were having about life and politics in South Asia. Okay, so where did we leave off last time? Yeah, we were talking about nationhood and how it's constructed, uh, especially, I think we talked quite a bit about India, so maybe we should hear something about Pakistan from Tayyaba. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pakistan, there are some exciting, hopeful things that are happening. So maybe we can turn to more, uh, some happier things. There is a new movement uh, in Pakistan that is called Pashtun Tahafuz Movement or PTM. It's emerging from the so-called tribal areas in the northwest that have been implicated in a war, the war on terror led by the U.S. Uh, in neighboring Afghanistan. Uh, and this area has had quite a bit of fallout from this war because of an increasing um, number of refugees that have been coming into this region and also historical ties that bind the um, ethnic community uh, or the ethnic nation of Pashtuns that live on both sides of the border here. At the same time, they've been facing the brunt of the of military operations led by the Pakistan military in the area to clear away the area ostensibly for militants. And so this movement now is emerging that is clearly, very clearly asking for an end to war and militarization and the brutalization of, of people that are living here. And this movement has become, it's become very big. There's thousands of people that come out to very peaceful rallies that they hold and just recounting the violence that they have faced for so many years. Um, the reason that I call it hopeful is that uh, it's the first time, at least to my knowledge, that such a huge anti-war movement has emerged in the region that's clearly asking for an end to imperialist warfare, that's holding the Pakistani ruling class to account for the kind of political economy of war that they have been benefiting from. Um, and it's very clearly drawing links with other oppressed nations. It's been aligning itself with the women's movement. It's been aligning itself. I mean, a lot of the student movement has been aligning itself with it as well. Um, it's talking about issues of class. And despite the fact that they're facing a lot of suppression by the state, and, you know, we were talking about that earlier because the media is not allowed to cover it and so on. It's still generating a lot of um, enthusiasm among young people to ask for greater emancipation and, and greater rights. And it clearly, again, in echoing what's happening in India, it uses a very constitutional language to articulate its demands. So it holds the Pakistani constitution sovereign, saying that it allows for regional autonomy, saying that it has socialist principles within the Pakistani constitution, and really asking for rights within the constitution, uh, which makes it a very powerful movement in Pakistan. So just on the name, uh, Pashtun Tahafuz movement, that's the name, right? Mm -hmm. Tahafuz what? means protection. And what is Pashtun? Pashtun is the ethnic uh, nation that is part that is in the northwest of Pakistan, and it's the same. Uh, it, I mean, it has uh, its members are also in Afghanistan, so uh, it's an ethnic ethnicity. It's an ethnic group. And uh, you know, speaking of hope and uh, protests and demonstrations, uh, it, it's interesting to me to learn about VTM because uh, one of the the more historic things about the recent protests in India, particularly, has been the fact uh, that one of the neighborhoods in, in New Delhi called Shaheen Bagh has now been occupied for, uh, it started around the 10th of January. And when I say occup occupied, I, I mean that actually people who, who reside in the neighborhood have been there all along in this time period. And But it's been prim primarily led by Muslim women 
they have come to you know be the defining image but also many of the protests across the city have been led by women or or by students but you find this very interesting uh, gendered component to it so to give just to give you an example you know there was this incident where the student wing of the bjp which is called the abvp their uh, workers stormed the hostel at the jawaharlal nehru university in new delhi which has been one of the sites popular sites of protest against the modi regime and they entered the hostels you know they destroyed the the women's hostel hit the students union president on her head you know the of, of essentially this image of you know blood streaming from her head and then you know her bandaged uh, forehead it it became the defining image of the protests as well to the point that in fact many of the popular you know popular faces especially your know, bollywood celebrities who've been very hesitant in speaking out against the government they were then moved to give an example Deepika Padukone is an actor she then comes and s- stands in solidarity with the student union president who, whose name is Aisha Ghosh so so that's i think a very very interesting uh, change or a trend that we see in the recent protests and it's it's hopeful particularly because it's now being it's not not merely being you know led by by muslims but you see a, a diverse coalition but at the front of it are, are muslim women in shaheen bag but women generally in different parts of india so actually what well, i was also wondering about um i guess i can't really ask about an anti-war movement in in india to connect these things because there is none <laughs> there is war though there's war yeah, yeah. I was actually I had a, a question um about how these Shaheen Bagh protests are relating to the war that is going on in Kashmir. So the question of Kashmir is is, is even more complicated than so just to give you an example. Uh So know, wait, hold on a second. What is Kashmir? There's a Led Zeppelin song. Have you guys heard it? No. It's, it's great. I, I haven't heard it. No. <laughs> is that what this is about? <laughs> I, I don't know. Kashmir wool, right? That's the other thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> Kashmir is another legacy that we have from partition. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's the territory that was left undivided uh when the british left india and by the rules of kashmir uh, so by the rules for partition it should have gone to pakistan because it has a muslim majority population uh however another rule was that if the india at the time had a lot of so called princely states that were ruled by local ruling families and so the prince who was ruling kashmir uh was a hindu and these princely states could effectively decide where they wanted their state to go and so because the the prince was hindu it could have gone to india and nehru uh, who was the first prime minister of india wanted kashmir to come to india because he was kashmiri himself and so this region has has since been left in limbo and both countries have staked their claim to it and so it's a region very much under occupation effectively you know there's two parts of it that are occupied by both countries um and there's a line of control that runs through the middle and all the princely states that uh, you know tayaba just mentioned they were you know included within this new nation that was to be known as india and uh, an instrument of accession so according to the terms of that instrument that was signed between the ruler of kashmir uh, hari singh and prime minister nehru then it mandated that there must be a you know right to self determination so there there had to be a referendum for kashmiris to be able to determine whether they want to stay independent or 
or whether they want to be a part of India or, or Pakistan. But that referendum was never carried out. So that's considered to be, you know, one of the major historical lapses or mistakes made by the Indian state. Uh, and that failed, you know, essentially promise lives on. Uh, we should mention that the first war that the two countries fought with each other was almost right after partition and it was over Kashmir, which resulted in the effective split that is that Kashmir is now under. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just to sort of, it's interesting that one of the clarion calls or the popular chants right now in protests in, in India is Azadi, uh, which means freedom. Uh, but this call to freedom actually is a legacy of, of the movement for Kashmiri independence. And it's, you know, it, it's been now taken on in a very different context in the anti-Modi protest. So Kashmir lives on. I, you know, just to go back to the, the, the question that Tayyab asked me about Shaheen Bagh and Kashmir, because as I was earlier saying that actually the articulation of, of, of the protest against Modi has been done in solely nationalist terms. Kashmir actually has been not a topic for debate. The only thing, the only extent to which people have been, you know, willing to talk about Kashmir is to bring an end to the communications blockade, which is now. So there's been no internet now for for six months, and the state is under the state is under a state of curfew ever since fifth of August last year. So so, so much of whatever conversation that we've actually seen has been about, you know, bring internet back, bring normalcy back. Normalcy is a word that you'd hear quite often in with relation to Kashmir. And so there haven't been any, say, demands for the referendum to be carried out, for example. Uh, and that's where it is at. But uh, there, are, there are very immediate political reasons behind it because most of the protests in India would get discredited completely by all quarters the moment the question of Kashmiri independence is at play uh, because Kashmir is considered to be an integral part of India by every political formation in India and it would lose popular support or that's how that's what you know how protesters uh, who are organizing in India seem to think about it but you see far more free Kashmir uh, posters or, or, or posters which urge for Kashmiri independence outside India in the protests that have been you know conducted against the Modi regime. So, for example, in Toronto, we we saw multi- many of those posters. So, I think within India though, that conversation hasn't been possible. But these protests have still made room to speak for Kashmiri independence. But that's been only been possible when it's happened outside India. I mean, we should mention that normalcy means that Kashmir, even before the latest round of attacks, was the most militarized region in the world. How many soldiers to every person? The figure that I saw before this recent clampdown was that for every seven civilians, there was one either soldier or police officer. So it was under de facto occupation, right? And and that is normalcy. And that's normalcy. And it is interesting that... uh, situation even in Kashmir is considered to have reached this point where now there's an armed forces special powers act which is which has been active in Kashmir for the better part of uh, two and a half decades and it's eerily coincidental coincidental with the rise of you know the Hindu nationalist party BJP in politics although it's not that both phenomena can explain each other but it, it does say something about how an assertive nationhood, you know, came to be considered a fair game. And that 
one of the other things that you see is actually increased militarized presence and the recent round the recent round of uh, oppression in kashmir has meant that the special status that kashmir had within the indian federation has been revoked legally right um and so people even outside of kashmir can now buy land in kashmir and that is explicitly seen by kashmiris as a violation even further violation of the rights that they had the limited rights that they had before and um, m- much of the uh, you know um, many of the kashmiri activists uh, the language that they use is that they see this as a settler colonial project mm-hmm. which is obviously uh, you know canada itself is seen, seen as a settler colonial white settler colonial country uh, and did they see here similarities between how you know the, the colonial or the imperial project was carried out and how kashmir is seen in those terms when you speak of its nature when when you know bollywood films have to be shot and they have to show this is you know beautiful landscapes but the people are erased uh, to the point that the, that the, it's the physical landscape which seems to hold far more importance in the national imaginary than, than anything else yeah. and i think also this is this entire event is is a reflection of the links between the modi regime and increasingly big capital in india right as soon as kashmir special status was revoked there were deals signed with the largest financial groups in india to start investing in kashmir and at the same time india was forging a, a huge alliance with saudi arabia and getting money from saudi arabia so again that that questions the entire sort of muslim unity project that saudi arabia is trying to build in the region when india is you know effectively colonizing a muslim majority region um saudi arabia is helping to support that entire project can i say something that might get me in trouble sure. <laughs> i don't know if the term settler colonialism is really helpful for understanding kashmir Yeah, I think it's one of those unfortunate exports from western academia. You know, settler colonialism I think yes, it it very much describes the Americas, but to to suggest that non-Kashmiri Indians are somehow I don't know colonizing India or or settling there and doing so in a way that's, you know, comparable to Europeans coming and and wiping out 90% of the population that that was uh, original to this land and then settling it i don't think that's helpful i mean I, yeah i i think the terms i guess you've you're indicating uh, to it anyway that, that i think the terms potency is from the fact that much of what's happened in kashmir wasn't talked about enough and then obviously the modi government decided to go ahead with the state of curfew in august and uh, many kashmiri activists or you know journalists writers they wanted to you know really describe of what's happening and it it is a term that helps make the situation intelligible so it, it it's this ready term which which i i i i mean i i'm in agreement with you that it doesn't actually describe what's happening in its entirety but it's it's a it's a useful term because it makes things intelligible of what's happening in kashmir at the same time don't you think that that is that what you're saying is dependent on where you draw the line between indigenous indigenous and foreign i don't know if that's the crucial thing i just don't think that you know india's project in kashmir can be described as settler colonial i it's just not it's not even colonial but in terms of extracting resources and capital from kashmiris to develop and to enrich 
India, but not the Kashmiris themselves, isn't that an extractive project that could fall under what colonialism used to do? I'm just pushing back at you. I mean, <laughs> Kashmiris have, you know, uh, formally speaking, full citizenship in India. They have the right to vote. They have the right to take part in politics, wider society, culture. And, and the other point is that I'm not trying to say that that somehow Kashmir is, you know, it's better the argument for me is not that things aren't so bad in Kashmir. In fact, I mean, I'm sure that from today's standpoint, if you look at the conditions of indigenous people in Canada and compare them with people in Kashmir, people in Kashmir have it worse. So the point is not that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say that one is worse than the other. It's just that I, it, it doesn't help from the standpoint of categorizing it or, or understanding it. Yeah, I think I, I see where you're coming from. But at the same time, India's laws are not applied equally to Kashmiris. Kashmiris are governed under AFSPA, like Priyanch said. And though that that is in, you know, it draws from older colonial logics of governing colonized populations, the way that that law functions, where, you know, tribes for in Pakistan, the same law used to be governing our tribal region. And that was completely it used to draw from colonial logics of governance, right? So again, like it is, I think it is a tricky way. You're right that it's not fully a settler colonial project as it was over here. But I would argue that Kashmiris, even formally, are not regular citizens of India. Yeah, and also I think, like the ever said, it doesn't maybe capture, you know, entirely what is happening in, in Kashmir. But uh, I think it's also, in fact, I, for me, one of the severe indictments of, of you know what is happening in Kashmir is actually an indictment of how nation states are supposed to operate, of how territory and borders are so central to its own understanding that even the slightest change is you know unacceptable, and, and it really is is the question of I mean you know this term that we keep hearing from uh, na na nationalist voices in India of, of that it is an integral part of India. It's this idea that a physical displacement of, of, of borders would amount to you know the collapse of the Indian pro project and and this vision of, of the nation state is insecure so it, it actually that's what also captures the issue at hand for me that because of the very design of a nation state it cannot you know fathom losing territory and territory is so central to its how it understands itself yeah um I don't know. I don't know if I have anything else to say on this, but I I can say something else that might get me in trouble. Sure, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> to the extent that there are demands for separatism in Kashmir, and that's not what all the Kashmiris are. There's no homogenous movement that's necessarily calling for a separatist movement at this point, as far as I know. But to the extent that there is are demands for separatism and yet another partition on the Indian subcontinent, I'm wary of that demand being met. And so not that I am somehow tied to this idea of a unified India uh, with, you know, very rigid borders, but I, to me, you know, separatism, I don't know if it really solves the problems that, that it seeks to. I think, again, like going back to what we discussed previously, I think the demand for separatism often hides just demands for greater autonomy and greater 
access to or self-determination over your own resources, right? And this is something that, um, you know, recently we were talking about the Khalistan movement and how, again, the demand for us or for Khalistan, which is a demand for a Sikh nation being created out of Punjab, also hides elements of the fact that Sikh, the Sikh people feel that they have not been given enough rights over their own territory or their own resources, or it also for example, hides uh, or contains demands for acknowledging the oppression that has been visited on the six, right? So yes, we can be wary of the demand for more borders and more bloodshed. Uh, but at the same time, I think if we were to understand the fact that this is uh, these demands are coming out of desires for greater emancipation, we can find ways to support those ideas for the spirit in which they are made without necessarily supporting uh, the demand for separate states. That's tricky, though. And the thing you're uh, you're talking about, you guys published uh, on the Jamhur website an interview with uh, Pritham Singh. Yes. I read that. How did you like it? I thought it was interesting. I disagreed with some things. Mm -hmm. I do not support. I Can I just say very stridently that I do not support the struggle for a separate Sikh homeland? Mm -hmm. And if you want to see the problem with some of the contradictions of minority nationalisms and uh, how they can lead to some of the most reactionary types of characters coming to the fore, mm -hmm. that's a movement <laughs> <laughs> in, which, in which that has happened. And not to say that I don't support the struggle to uh, win rights for Sikh people in India, but I, yeah, I think there's, yep. there's lots of ways you can do that without partition. Yeah. I think and that's exactly what the article explores, right? The article talks about or the interview talks about the fact that the demand for Khalistan is only it's only for some people within the movement that they're actually even genuinely invested in the project of a separate state. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people that are part of that movement, or if you can even call it a movement, I don't think it's very strong movement within India. It's it's mostly driven by people in the diaspora. In Brampton. Um, in Brampton, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and in parts of England. Um, and again, there's a lot of tensions within their, that movement of class and so on, and the visions of what that state would look like. And so the vast majority of people that are in uh, that are that are joining that demand or supporting that demand uh, are really only acknowledging or, or wanting the state to acknowledge the oppression that happened in 1984, right? And um, doing something to re redress those grievances. And if you also, again, like looking in looking in Pakistan and the the demand for a separate Balochistan, which was a very strong demand up until there were huge military operations in Balochistan to to crush that demand. A lot of people were were supporting that project, not specifically or only for the state of Balochistan, but also the fact that Balochistan is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest contributors to the economy of Pakistan, and at the same time is completely underdeveloped, is the most underdeveloped region in the country. There's no schools, there's no hospitals. It supplies natural gas to the entire country, but has no natural gas for itself, for its own homes. Um, and so those are really grievances that we need to look at beyond just looking at it as the demand for a separate state. Yeah, I, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree with uh, that. But also, I think just say looking at uh, the Indian context again, I was, there have been other movements as well as in the Northeast, you know, speak of Assam. But uh, 
recently uh, you know is in certain state of kerala where the bjp has not been able to make any breakthroughs or even the state of tamil nadu where they have obviously you know very complex politics we can't get in too much detail about them but these are states in which you know bjp has not been a electoral force for very long and, and this fact is always you know sort of proudly per- paraded by residents in these states to the point that uh, they have been question- you know kerala is is essentially called pakistan in many of the hindu nationalist circles and uh, and you find that you know this constant chatter on, on there's not as many communists in pakistan yeah. as there are in <laughs> kerala so 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 this, yeah so there's there's that difference but but pretty much uh, you know it's it's called pakistan on, on two major accounts the first of all obviously that bjp is not doing very well there politically but secondly that because people eat beef uh and uh, you know the, the politics of food is is uh, very important to that question but but you just you know sort of speaking to uh, tayeba's point is that in, we, we don't have to you know imagine them as as a separate state or a nation state in fact in in kashmir's case it it has lost its statehood it, it it's not even a state anymore within india this is an act of violence through legislation uh, in which the state of jammu and kashmir it loses its powers and the whole process by how it was carried out was unconstitutional so there's already you know simmering alienation that you had against the indian state and then now it's you know the the question of kashmiri separatism is actually popular and and growing and that's down to the really the actions of the indian state of pushing that alienation so far that now you have to start uh, considering the fact that even the previous home minister the, the, the home minister and the, and the congress government uh, p chidambaram he feels like india has lost kashmir who is very well known for you know carrying out uh, aggressive actions which were carried out by the state's uh, military uh, or the police forces but uh, even in his own estimation he seems to think that india has lost kashmir that may not be the case territorially but uh, that's the general political sentiment in india i think another uh, just to shift gears a bit um, another way that we can talk about how the law is used is being used against the people is through the sedition law that is being applied on both sides of the border these days and, and it's it, it's a colonial era sedition law which is this pretty much uh, you know stayed the same despite the fact that independence was gained but many of the laws remained unchanged you know earlier we talked about how any dissident in india right now is being told to go to pakistan or or in pakistan you know uh, go, to india. go go to india or, or you're a r- agent of raw uh, or in the indian case it would be an agent of isi it, it, it's it's interesting that how litigious the current government is to the point that you you could be charged with sedition for anything i mean you you have this uh, ridiculous case recently in a school uh, in in the southern part of india where there was a play that was organized against the citizenship amendment act and now the the child's mother she's been now been threatened with sedition with the charge of sedition uh, so you even if you you know do any sort of anti government activities anti government has come to equate uh, you know anti india mm-hmm. and that's n- not even getting into the whole question of that actually the sedition law is oppressive because it is there to clamp down on dissent wasn't sedition also applied to some people who were celebrating pakistan's victory over india in a cricket match <laughs> yeah yeah that that and uh, it was also charged on some 
academics and intellectuals who were in support of a movement for Dalit assertion. Mm-hmm. So th- th- Dalits are, are lowest in the Hindu caste hierarchy. It's, so it, it's, it's essentially, you know, grossly misused. And it's obviously a law that is designed to clamp down the sense. So it's, a, I mean, in a in a world we've talked about nation states quite a bit, but in a world that you know in which your one of your prominent identities is as a citizen of a country, uh, being rendered stateless is really the the scariest things that can happen to anyone. And I mean, in Pakistan as well, the sedition law is being used against students who are just asking for safer universities, more investment in education, a stop to budget cuts on the education sector and the health sector that are being launched by the government. Um, so again, I think this also points to the fact that it's not just the law and and how the law is obviously inherited from our colonial times and it suits the ruling class to keep using that law. Um, but also the fact that the ruling class continues to follow this logic of colonial times, of colonial governance, where they're using, you know, they're they're clamping down or suppressing people in the vast majority of the country for various reasons. And then, you know, that lends itself to various nationalist movements that are then explicitly articulated in their own national idiom. You know, again, this, this sort of post-colonial state is using the tools and weapons that the colonial powers have left us with and continue to encourage us to use. And of course, all of this sort of uh, inter-ethnic, inter-religious or as it's called in in South Asia, communalism, which is very confusing because that's not what we mean when we say communalism here. Communalism is, yeah, communalism is like an anarchist tendency. (laughs) But yeah, in in the subcontinent, it usually means that Hindus and Muslims are murdering each other once again. It's a a ritual every weekend. (laughs) Sorry, no, but... This communalism is something that we focused a lot on, and it's, it's of course, something that is very important to that context. But one of the things that it does is that it hides the material conditions that the majority of the people on the subcontinent face, and, and the material conditions are characterized by uh, a very large amount of poverty. And there doesn't appear to be a strategy to have poverty alleviation. There's lots of communal infighting. There's lots of militarization. Two of the states, the the largest states in the region have nuclear weapons. While at the same time, a scarily large number of people in these countries don't have access to basic needs. Uh, It's interesting that uh, Prime Minister Modi, he thinks of himself as, as poor. And that's how that's the image that he projected when he came to power in 2014. That you know he calls himself a fakir, and the idea that he's been able to really sell is that he's actually fighting for the poor and he's against the elite. Which the some of the criticism of 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 India's elite classes is not entirely unfounded, although it it, it is delivered in this sort of Hindu supremacist uh, you know overtones. But it's it's interesting that that. Poverty seems to, you know, be the occupation of, uh, the preoccupation of, of 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 every Indian politician. Everybody's speaking of of, of a different scheme, but you know, uh, policy which would then speak of a redistribution of wealth hasn't been seen, you know, in in nearly fifty years now. 
ever since uh, Indira Gandhi was the, the last prime minister to undertake such a you know s- strong initiative when she essentially d- distributed the, the privy purses of, of all the princely families the, and even in the current moment you know when as as you're saying the poverty is so stark there hasn't been an opposition party which has actually been able to make has it been able to exploit th- this abject situation uh, there was some hope at the end of 2018 when there was a huge farmers march from the west of india in, in, in the state of maharashtra to the national capital in, in north in new delhi which had about 3 million farmers marching for for that vast distance to be able to put their demands forward none of their demands were really heard you know it was done in the usual in the usual manner of how pol- politicians behave you know we, 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 they made some fake promises and uh, the election cycle wasn't very far away so many promises were made but really india is still reeling you know severely from the demonetization when 86% of the currency notes were delegitimized as a drive against corruption by the modi government in november 2016 um the economy is, is in a terrible state is, you know the, the unemployment numbers are the highest in about f- over four decades so the economic situation actually and many people who are you know critics but also the supporters of of this government that's what they fear will eventually really bring things to a head to the point that that might mean you know the defeat of, of modi and bjp uh, which is a distinct possibility i don't i i, I certainly take that uh, possibility f- fairly seriously but the problem is that even the opposition has not been able to really speak of the needs of the working class which is the most of, of of the indian population and that's really you know the gap which an opposition could exploit and then bring other issues together and that would i think would be politically very productive but that's not been you know um, an opportunity that has been taken up until now i think yeah i would echo what both of you have said in pakistan we have right now one of the largest uh, youth populations by proportion of the total population in the world and actually many people many economists have described that as a ticking time bomb it's a you know very young population and joblessness is at an all-time high in pakistan as well um and the education infrastructure is really crumbling in the recent um in recent times they we have gone back to the imf to get another round of debt and that of course involves more budget cuts more uh, decimation of public infrastructure and greater privatization a relaxation of uh regula- regulation on businesses um and so while the debt servicing itself takes up a huge portion of the budget another drain on the resources is really the war economy and how the country has effectively been in a state of war since its founding first with kashmir and trying to maintain its hold on the part of kashmir that it does have um and then in imperial wars across the region either in alliance with the united states or in alliance with saudi arabia um and so that entire war economy has led to the creation of a very large military infrastructure and a dominance of the military in the political and economic affairs of the country uh which means that again the budget that the country really has to work with for its population is extremely limited when you cut out debt and the military that you uh have to pay for and then there is the problem that the elites that run the country are really not invested in in investing in the country itself um so food and health and education really just take a back seat 
And so malnutrition is, uh, Pakistan is one of the highest in the list of countries with uh, child malnutrition. And also for infant mortality and um, maternal mortality during pregnancy. While you guys were talking, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking that, uh, was it Walter Benjamin who said something along the lines of, uh, behind every fascism, there's a failed revolution? And if we think of the anti-colonial movements and in, in India, the first major anti-colonial victory of this country that had been under occupation for almost two centuries, that as, as a kind of a revolution, it had a, a kind of social democratic kind of leaning, you know, a, a strategy of class collaboration, right? The Nehruvian project was really sort of industrializing with the, not with um, forcing it upon the capitalist class, but to bring them along for the project, that this would be good for them as well. And I guess it didn't work. <laughs> and here, I guess here is the outcome of that failed revolution. You know, the slow death of the, of the promise of Indian independence, and with it, the, the death of and the falling apart of Congress as a ruling party of India, and then the rise of this fascism in the form of the BJP. Uh, that's a hard one to answer because uh, in some ways the you, you could also say that things that worked in the Nehruvid project are actually still very relevant and powerful in terms of articulating the opposition to the fascism that we see now. But uh, what has happened, I think, th that failed promise of, of you know of an independent India, it or it succumbed completely to the other global overarching factor which we haven't had a time to discuss of, of you know the global capital especially neoliberal state institutions which it wholeheartedly adopted at the beginning of the 90s which i think probably also explains what is happening in india now fairly well because until then the state's you know social schemes and its protections were far stronger than they are now and you know, with the reduction in public services, uh, and with these cuts to all of these services as well, what has happened is that many of you know the basic needs of of Indian citizens were not being fulfilled by the state. So who was stepping in? It was actually the grassroots Hindu nationalist organization, which is the RSS. So you know, we mentioned uh, the chief minister in UP who identifies himself as Yogi Adityanath, he is from Gorakhpur. And, and there were many reports when he was selected as the chief minister. Uh, many reporters, you know, went to his hometown in Gorakhpur and they were trying to learn of why he's been so popular. I think he's won general elections uh, there for, uh, in, his, in that constituency five or six times running now until he became the chief minister. And they, and they learned that actually what why he was popular was not so much because of the ideas of Hindu supremacy, but many of his workers in his office would ensure that if you were unwell, you would have an appointment at the public hospital or somebody would step in and, you know, get your pending railway ticket confirmed so that you could go to Delhi for, for an exam or, or whatever, which earlier would actually, the state services would have, you know, come in handy for the needy, that's where the state would have stepped in and helped. But here, in fact, 
the Hindu nationalists, obviously this has been, as I said at the beginning, that this has been an organization that's been working since, you know, 1925. Uh, so they were already ready to pounce at that opportunity. So, so the Indian states, you know, sort of willful submission to neoliberal institutions and, and capital actually meant that this possibility was created. And, uh, and I think these, you know, forces almost worked in conjunction to uh, bring us to this moment. I think even beyond that, just to add in a last thing, um, that despite the fact that both states, you know, were formed on this aspiration to really consider, you know, after colonialism, to bring all the population under a single uh, or you know, under the nation state and consider everyone equal was itself, there were so many contradictions even from the beginning, right? So even right after partition, uh, the Indian state cracked down on peasant movements, on non-trade unions, and, you know, the same thing happened in Pakistan. So while they were paying homage to this this conception of this ideal nation state or republic, there were a lot of class contradictions that were there. Um, and so on both sides of the border, uh, there were these realizations that this is, you know, this is a freedom, this is a so-called freedom, but at the same time, it's not really a freedom. So in on the Indian side, the Communist Party, you know, the, they published that pamphlet called Ye Azadi Juti Hai, or this is a false freedom. And on the Pakistani side, you know, the poet, the famous poet Fez wrote Dada Gojala, uh, which, you know, called this freedom a night-bitten dawn, right? So it's a stained dawn. And so the, they immediately realized that the promise that they had founded these countries on, that promise itself was compromised in many ways. And that partition especially overshadowed independence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, actually, before we wrap up, I, f- I remember we haven't talked about Babri Masjid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and one way to actually tie that in with what you just said Priyansh is you mentioned the uh, introduction of neoliberalism into India in 1991 with uh, who is your finance minister? Manmohan Singh. Manmohan Singh, right. Who, would, who later on goes, goes on to become prime minister in 2004. Yeah. Right. And in the case of Pakistan, we've always had neoliberalism. We had it before neoliberalism existed. <laughs> Pakistan has been the poster child of uh, the World Bank throughout its existence. Um, but it's interesting to me that in 1991, the Indian government says that, okay, we're open for business, right? All of these, this red tape, this Nehruvian sort of regulatory state, we need to get rid of it, just scale back social services, all of the things that are part of sort of in- introducing neoliberalism, globalization. And then in 1992, something happens in, in Ayodhya where one of the mosques, this historical mosque, is destroyed by a, a mob of Hindu nationalists. And uh, that conjuncture is, is interesting because the movement to destroy Babri Masjid, the, the mosque, almost you know, starts at the point when India is actually experiencing severe economic depression and you know, the economy is, is in a poor state, not enough jobs. And to the point that there is, at, at one point, there is, uh, you know, a serious threat of even bankruptcy. So it is in that moment that the Hindu nationalist movement is actually able to make a significant breach, uh, not politically, but to, you know, this uh, contentious argument that they make about um, almost, it's not even contentious, even without any evidence that this was the birthplace of Lord Ram, who's... Uh, obviously, one of the 
more hallowed Hindu, uh, you know, God says probably uh, sits where there, there is no hierarchy. But if there was to be one, we'd probably be at the top. And they're able to sell this, you know, lie pretty much, turn it into a really popular political metaphor. The point that your identity to being a Hindu is linked to the fact that whether you support the building of and the Ram temple in place of the mosque, and it's considered that that's that site where the mosque exists is where uh, Lord Ram was born. That's the contention anyway. So, so it, it it you know builds into a movement over time, and obviously the the Indian state itself makes many lapses. It doesn't act as swiftly as it should, to the point that on December sixth of nineteen ninety two, a mob goes and and then goes and destroys the mosque. It it opens up Pandora's box. It follow it is followed by riots in Bombay in nineteen ninety three, but uh, sort of mo- mo- moving past a couple of decades, and, and you know arriving to say last year. There has been an ongoing legal dispute following that destruction of the mosque, which was finally uh, adjudicated upon by the apex court in India, the Supreme Court. And in a unanimous judgment, it decided that actually the destruction of the mosque was a violation of the law, but it still went ahead and you know granted the site to the Hindu nationalist petitioners. Which is a is a, a, a baffling judgment, and, and it's uh, it's also built on specious grounds, because it it, it denies the the claim of, of the Muslims to that site on, on this assumption that they were not able to prove that you know worship that there was the Friday prayers were taking place on that site, going back to nineteenth century, or going back to sorry in the sixteenth century in fact, but it is odd that they. They do admit that that a mosque existed, but they're saying this. They're, then they're making this laughable, coming to this laughable conclusion that there were no prayers being offered. So then, why would the mosque ex- exist? So, so, so that is the problem with you know with how it's been, uh, with how the the judgment went on. But now, essentially, those who destroyed the mosque have been rewarded, and a Ram t- a temple uh, is supposed to be now going to be built on that site, which is a travesty of justice. And uh, which also you know speaks to the status of Muslims who are pretty much treated as second-class citizens, not just by the Indian government but the judiciary. And in India, most of the protections have actually collapsed. So if, if the state actually you know violates your fundamental rights, you can't go you can't go to the court expecting anymore that it will look after you. And that is why when people you know call it uh, a, a quasi-fascist or a fascist state right now. It's for the precise reasons that all the pillars of democracy, which are considered to be obviously the, the, the executive legislature, uh, I mean, and the media, uh, and all of them are, have actually completely, you know, essentially bought into, are essentially speaking from the same line or singing from the same hymn sheet. Yo, the Indian media is insane. It's worse than the Pakistani media. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no comparison. I yeah, think. yeah. So, so, th- so that, that, so that is the state, and, and you know, that is the context behind the Ayodhya judgment, which arrived last year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess for me, it's interesting that ethnic religious conflict comes in at the very moment when you know people's material conditions are being downgraded. And so then ethnic conflicts stands in for what should be taking place, which is class conflict. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that also we didn't touch upon how the the trajectory of the left itself in both countries and the kinds of challenges that it has faced, especially in the context of the Cold War and the implications of the Cold War in that region. Especially for, if I can speak to Pakistan, it's it's that uh, the U.S. And, and Pakistan were very closely tied together. And so the left did face a lot of repression in that time. And and also with the fact that the, the Afghan war happened in the 80s and when the Soviet Union entered Afghanistan in support of a... Uh, movement there, um, the United States used the Pakistani military and intelligence agencies to hit back and cultivated with the help of Saudi Arabia, what began as Afghan Taliban freedom fighters uh, that were fighting the Soviet Union in the name of Islam, you know, considering the Soviet Union was the great uh, disbeliever or atheist. The great Satan. Well, the great Satan is now the oh, US. All right, that's the US. <laughs> but there was this, the Islamists in the region were happy to work with the U.S. because yes. the U.S. was, they said, a Christian power, mm-hmm. whereas the Soviet Union was a atheist. atheistic. Yeah. And religious movements were, in fact, cultivated by, by the U.S. across the region. Um, and the Taliban was part of one part of that entire policy. And with the Pakistani state officially being allied with the U.S. and getting a lot of money from the U.S. to conduct this war on its behalf meant that the left faced a lot of repression across the country. And that that worked well for the, the, the elites within Pakistan as well. So they were happy doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a long history of leftist politics in uh, the Indian context as well. But uh, just to, you know, summarize where it is at in the current moment. Uh, so in 2004 elections, all the left parties combined had 64 seats, which is a huge number because it essentially enabled the Congress party to form a government without the support that would not have been possible. In the current legislature, they only have four seats, so electorally decimated. But you know, in terms of a hopeful uh, possibility for the left within the Indian context is the fact that many of the current protests are actually uh, being organized by people who, you know, would identify themselves under the banner of one of the communist parties, one of, there are many iterations. And and you find that they are at, at the universities, but also at Shaheen Bagh, which we discussed, they are fairly visible. And maybe this is now the opportunity for them to be able to make a political breakthrough because electorally, they've been pretty much, you know, wiped across the board. Mm-hmm. I think same, uh, I can say the same thing for Pakistan as well, where the absence or the repression on the left meant that nationalist politics did gain a lot more prominence although they were part of they were part of certain left formations but officially the communist party went underground and was banned but now there is a growing attraction of people towards the left a lot of young people and a lot of movements that are now led by young people are being conducted in have very progressive principles and are genuinely demanding social justice and articulating themselves on the left, which is, again, as you can see in the women's movement, the students' movement, and in the latest iteration of the ethnic uh, national movement, which is the PTM. You know, just one thing I love about uh, the South Asian context and speaking to South Asians like you guys is that when you say left, you mean communist, whereas in North America... Well, in Canada, I guess it means the NDP. In the U.S., it means the Democratic Party. Obama. Obama. (laughs) 
for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. We'll see you again soon. Bye.